Well, we both live in Amsterdam and we meet up for coffee every now and then. The last time, you know, usually what we end up discussing, I think, uh, other than, uh, you know, where to get hummus and coffee and, and <laughs> things like that is, uh, you know, I, I actually kind of shifted some, the, this book I've been writing to kind of fit this topic. And, and I call it the, uh, the business bottleneck and the, the conceit of that being, uh, I, I hope that's the right word for conceit <laughs> or right meaning is, is essentially like, uh, now, there's all exception to this, but it is possible. We know how IT should be run to be more agile and better and to do software and deliver your software every week and all this great stuff to be like a tech company. Now, whether or not an IT department does that or not is a whole other thing. It's kind of like, you know, it's possible to have perfect teeth that you never need to get uh, cavities removed from or anything. We all know how to do that. But uh, it's not always that we do it. But then it seems like the problem is even in the best in the, in the middling case, in the best case, IT becomes really good at uh, doing software really well and running it. But I, I still don't get the sense that on the business side, that is to say, whatever the organization's point is, that they quite know what to do with that that uh, type of IT, that that uh, capability for it. And therefore, you know, everything always starts with developers and developers would say, you know, QA was a bottleneck. And so they took that over in the early 2000s. And then it's sort of like operations is the bottleneck. So you have all this DevOps think, not the fun, like you shouldn't be a jerk cultural part, but the more technical thing. And so the developers like take that over and they remove that as the bottleneck. And I guess maybe now like day two operations monitoring or something is a bottleneck. I don't know. Or, or it was, but it seems like now, to round out my little uh, screed here, you got you got the business side as the bottleneck because we can do whatever you want with software. Again, we know how to do it. Actually doing it's another story. But it's sort of like eventually the business side needs to come and be like, all right, here's what I want to do with that capability. So Yeah, maybe. But I mean, there's been – so what, it took years and years, I think, for uh, industry to get to this point, yes. right? It took many, many years of dysfunction. And many, many years of not trusting uh, what the IT silo, your IT group can do. And I think that's that's the state that we have now is that the there is just no communication. It's dysfunctional and it's broken. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and so that's like that's like uh, I think over the past few times we've met up, what's fun to talk about is like, uh, so so what do we do about that? <laughs> <laughs> and I think why, why, don't, why don't you introduce yourself uh, briefly and uh, kind of go over a bit of your relevant background. And then and then I think we should get to, uh, uh, you know, you kind of going over the, some of the stuff we've discussed about that that exact divide about how the business thinks differently and how I.T. thinks differently and how to marry them up. This new silo to use DevOps talk that we have. But but first, uh, what's your deal? <laughs> okay, my name is uh, Rick Clark. I am currently the field CTO for EMEA for Pivotal. Um, before that, I was the uh, senior vice president for cloud infrastructure at MasterCard. And what people listening to this podcast might know me better for is I was the uh, used to lead the Ubuntu server project. I was the first lead of that, so that was my product I helped create. And I'm uh, one of the founders and uh, and the former project lead of the OpenStack project. Mm. We should go back to that for historic reasons at some point and just uh, talk about that. That was that was like I feel like many many people nowadays who work in the cloud area had uh, had maybe some formative years in the OpenStack world. There's a lot of uh, all sorts of exciting stuff there. Yeah, there's something happening there. <laughs> well, you know, 
Is OpenStack still around nowadays? I ask this completely as a leading uh, question. I mean, you know. Yeah, I, I believe it is. I'm, I'm not actively involved in yeah. it. Um, but I've, I'm, I, I've seen some posts flying around that people are heading to some, like they're calling it the, instead of the OpenStack Summit that they used to have, they're calling it the OpenStack Open Infrastructure Summit, mm, I think. Yeah. Um, so they're trying to encompass, you know, a little bit larger scope and bring in others. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, you know, my, my question is, is facetious. Of course it's around. And, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's used by lots of places. And I think my, my conception is that it's settled into a few core use cases and uh, it's, it's used there just fine, which, which, is, uh, which is great. Uh, so then back to, the, uh, back to the topic at hand. So, uh, I, I mean, what's your, what's your perception of this, uh, this wall, these silos between how the business thinks about how it's running its organization and how IT kind of thinks about itself and how there's probably like these misaligned incentives between how they collaborate together? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of different reasons for, uh, for, for the situation we're, we're in now. I mean, one, one case, one potential reason that I've seen is that IT was seen just as a cost and lowering that cost is good. No, no different than if you can buy the same banana for, you know, 10 cents less at a different shop that saves you money on bananas. And because of that, things were outsourced Mm. and every year things were outsourced more and more and more. Every year they outsourced more. They wanted to pay less to bring down the costs. And eventually they were in this world where they, the dystopian world where they didn't actually know how their own technology operated because they had outsourced everything. And they were paying so little to these outsourcing companies that they were getting exactly what they paid for. So uh, that when, you, when you have a bunch of... Um, hmm. And I, you know, I'm not anti-outsourcing. I, I don't want to seem like that. I think, think there certainly are, are, are times for it. But I think you have to still know how to run your own, your own business. And I think they, they gave that up a little bit. I, I think I think I think to your point, and tell me tell me what you think of this. But I think I think the criticism of outsourcing, to add some some words to what you're just saying, is when you when you outsource it like you would like your uh, your your water, right? Where you like you you sort of think of it as this commodity thing that doesn't really ever need to change, and so therefore you can negotiate and lock down what it's going to do and what the pricing is, and then lo and behold. Like you want it to do different things and, yeah, and like it, that's it, it, not what yeah. you agreed to. <laughs> like, you know, it would be, it would be like if, if, uh, if, uh, if I had an electric oven and so I pay the electric company and then like, uh, two years from now I was like, why, why can't I hook up this gas range? I don't understand. Why can't I get gas in this house? And so as long as, uh, your needs are static. It works out okay, but that's rarely the the case when it comes to software development or even like some of the ancillary needs of software development. Like I would like to get a server in minutes instead of months. Yep. Um, I, I I think that, and I don't know how it is in every company, but in many companies, the the actual development house might sit on the business side, and the IT silo is actually just running the infrastructure and operations. And you ended up with this, uh, you end up with the developers on the business side and they start learning, Hey, I can do this new cloud stuff. And then they have this infrastructure that's provided that's been mostly outsourced that doesn't offer the same advantages. And so they, they then want to go around the IT team, which makes the IT, IT team not respect the business developers. And you have this sort of vicious cycle of, uh, 
of people not respecting and not understanding what each other's doing. Like, like what causes that friction? I mean, you have the historic thing of just like IT being over schedule and over budget, but uh, like what, how does it go both ways? Like, I think especially us being in IT, it's easy, easy for us to characterize like, you know, the, the problems with IT, but like, I imagine uh, uh, there's sort of like some, some reform that needs to happen on both sides. One of the mistakes in tran- transformation as people become agile, I'm doing, I'm doing air quotes because agile is almost meaningless, but you know what I mean. Um, one of the mistakes they make is they just change the way IT works and business still works the same way and still expects the same things. And if you're going on a transformation journey and it started and ended in IT, then it's a complete failure. And, and you know, in large companies, you have, you might have business units and IT spread out all across the world. So this is a, you know, these kind of changes, these cultural changes are extremely difficult to implement. And, and what, what do you, what do you reckon those cultural changes are? Well, the, the, the method of communication between businesses, the business owners, the owners, the people that own the products and that have the problem that need to be solved and the, and the IT teams, it needs to be, it needs to change. It needs to be quick. If we're going to do something that's agile, then you need tight feedback loops. You need, they need different ways of interacting. Um, in most large companies, there is a very complex method of communication. You might fill out some very, um, some long engineering form so that you can justify resources. It is, it is certainly not a quick, agile, friendly process. Um, so it's about, it's like going to the DMV. You put that kind of, uh, you put, you put that kind of paperwork in front of something and no one's going to enjoy it. Yeah. 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 Or, or, uh, two of my recent experiences are, uh, getting, getting your U S passport renewed, which actually, which, I guess isn't so bad, but it is like, it is, it is one of those things where, uh, if you did it, if you could do it all online, uh, it would be a lot more efficient, sort of like, uh, I don't know. I feel like paying your, your U S taxes nowadays is pretty well taken care of, uh, doing, doing things online. Uh, but, um, and then another one is just like, you know, especially so like both of us are, are expats living abroad and we have this, uh, well, I don't know about you, but I have this pivotal is nice enough to give me some international health insurance and like all health insurance, like figuring out exactly what it does is near impossible, <laughs> right? Like, like everyone, everyone has great UI design of the best intentions, but at the end of the day, there's a, a ponderous PDF to download, which you read through and it's still not very informative, which really has nothing to do with it being deficient. But, um, I forgot what I was going to go back to to ask, but uh, I was just complaining about stuff. Um, but, you, you know, I mean, to narrow in on one thing, it seems to me, I mean, just to throw out maybe a, uh, uh, what would you call it, a scenario to see why it doesn't work. Like, it seems like, it seems like maybe the issue is that these two groups are like separate. And, and like, I always, I always think of like toothpaste. And I always wonder, like, are the people who are inventing and developing the toothpaste different than the people who, like, own the business of selling the toothpaste? Like, mm. like it almost seems like, at, at least my naive notion, like, I wonder if they have silos, too. And, like, in the, uh, you know, when you go to Orlando to the uh, Global Consumer Packaged Goods Conference every year, uh, if there's a lot of complaint of, like, we've got to get the people who invent 
the minty fresh toothpaste they've got their own silo and then there's <laughs> then there's the 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 brand managers and they're in their own silo and they just never talk with each other and they must Not have to like, mention tube design i mean there's probably a totally different silo that's right they must so, they must have the equivalent of a devops report each year that talks about the high performers and the low performers and how they're operating or, or not. I don't know. I mean, it does. But, you know, a, a good a good way to look at this, you know, when you're talking about the silos, I think, is about um, what they care about and yeah. how they're incentivized. Yeah. So if it in on IT is usually ops and they are using in, usually incentivized based on uptime. So they they their goal and they feel very proud of this usually is keeping everything up and running and stable. That's what they get. That's what they get paid for. And that's what they want to do. And to do that um, for years and years, you minimized and reduced the amount of change. More change, more churn, more problems, less, less bonus. That, um, but if you're a developer, especially on the business side, your job is to find new business, to develop new applications, to bring in new revenue, to innovate. So you have this one group that is trying to stop innovation because they're incentivized to stop it and another group that is incentivized to innovate. Yeah. And I think that's that's the key breakdown. And you know, I don't think that's everywhere. I think, you know, when you talk about operating like a startup, a startup doesn't have those divisions. Um and they all kind of work together, but it's you know, if you have 30,000 or 100,000 employees spread across the world, that is a, a difficult thing to to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and I think I think that's that's the uh uh I think this is a couple of times back you uh you were raising the point that here in <laughs> Europe people seem to be interested in being like tech companies, which which uh, you know, I I I've been I've been at Pivotal for about 5 years and and I'd feel like definitely when I started when I was in the US like that was the sort of uh the thing, like be like Silicon Valley and tech companies. And we I think the official Pivotal deck even had a slide that had like a Tesla, Airbnb and Uber and whatever, whatever the logos were back then that were the uh, the companies people were both fearful of and uh, admirous and admired. Um, mm-hmm. And but over time, I sort of have dropped that out of my uh, way of thinking because it doesn't come up so much uh, in the U.S. companies. But maybe here in Europe, uh, it's still the, the state of the art. But so that connects back to what you're saying is like um, – for, from a, a, a strictly IT perspective, you could say, like, we want to be like a tech company in that we uh, we operate really well and, you know, we're doing agile and, uh, I don't know, we're using cloud or whatever, all the technical sorts of things. But I think there's there's a, a bigger meaning of it, which is exactly as you just described, is is there is no separation between the business and IT, um, which which I guess I always think, like, I mean, you, you've worked at both um, – let's call them enterprises, enterprises and vendors. <laughs> and I often, th- I've only ever worked in vendors and, you know, in a vendor, there's not that much of a separation <laughs> at all <laughs> because, yeah. because you're selling the software. Like that's your core, that is the core business. And I, and I guess, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess maybe we've gotten to this point because software hasn't been core to how the business runs for a long time. So they didn't really have to value it that highly. And it could kind of be an ancillary thing. I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either because it has been important. I mean, it should have been valuable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I guess what I and, and I haven't really put this into words, so we'll see if I can do it. But I guess, I mean, my, I, I don't know if it's been until 
maybe starting in like the late 90s that many companies would look at that aren't software vendors would look at custom written software as like a core important thing for them now there's exceptions here and there especially in finance but like in general it's like you know mainframes were used and big computing was used to basically manage supply chain in the erp era and then like figure out what checks to send to people <laughs> for like for like government welfare and nhs nhs stuff but I don't know. I mean, that's that's also wrong because back in the the primitive days of computing, you had to write all that stuff on your own. So there is like a weird, I don't know. Just like you said, it is now. Now that I s- spell it out, it's a weird mystery that software hasn't been at the core. Custom written software hasn't been at the core of most businesses. Well, you know, I I think I think some of that is just is because of the of the divide, at least the places where it definitely should have been. So you've got this, you have a business silo that's controlling all of the business applications and all the business activity. And then you have IT and they control infrastructure. So they start working only on infrastructure. And then you have the business, the business unit that doesn't trust IT. So they have their own developers or they outsource it. And there's no communication between the the two at all. So yeah, there's, there's very little, uh, it's, it's completely broken. In in most of the companies I've 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 been in, it's it's completely broken. And and so like like I mean you were hitting on uh, essentially uh, there's there's misaligned incentives between the two, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean the the joke I always make is uh, operations people are responsible for uh, keeping the software up and running, and uh, as as operations people know, developers are responsible for bringing down production, <laughs> <laughs> right? And so and so that means that you try to slow down uh, as many deployments as possible, and and you know that's only within IT, <laughs> mm-hmm. but still, like I guess I guess if if that's the jokey way of putting the uh, the wall between developers and operations, what's like how how would you frame the 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 wall between like the business side and the IT side in a similar kind of uh helpfully jokey way <laughs> um, well i mean it is it is a wall of of mistrust um the, and and it goes back to the incentives again right so the business side they're incentivized usually by a couple of things it's it's usually by revenue but in order to get revenue you have to get things to market you have to get your products out there. So your goal is to get is to get things out there quickly, so that you can generate revenue, so that you can get your bonus. And IT's job, the whole IT silo is to their job is to slow you down so you don't risk any downtime. Mm. So you know that's why you you see uh, 100 page um, upgrade documents and six month uh, a six month window before you're allowed to change something i mean you, you you see these kinds of things because it is afraid and there's usually a change board and on that change board sits no one from the business or from the application side it sits operation people who are, are there to decide what you can and can't do which leads to a lot of uh, a lot of businesses on the, the business silos going around it and try and developing things in the cloud even when they're not supposed to so essentially, uh, the business side doesn't trust IT, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of disrespect that I think goes around um, on on both sides. And 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 so so to delve, I mean, you've you've worked, you've uh, straddled this line uh, here and there in in your, your career. Like, what 
Like, like, so, so you mentioned time to market as far as like the, the goals and incentives of the business mm-hmm. side, but like, how, how would you characterize their, in general, like their goals and incentives? Like, and, and, you know, it varies business to business, but like, Give us a sense of like what it feels and smells like and maybe even how they derive what those are. So that that is an interesting uh, topic, which we may not have time to fully cover because I'm very opinionated about it. I, I have seen. So I, I think what you're kind of alluding to are the, the KPIs, the things that we use to measure. Yeah. Ourselves. Yeah. You know, for yeah. for example, uh, and these are just stereotypical, whatever, you know, like developers goals and incentives might be like our goal is to put out a release of software every week and do this much story points or feature implementation and like otherwise write good software (laughs) and as a developer it's interesting to think about this as a developer you don't the incentive that you're given is basically like you get a comfortable job and we'll give you a raise every now and then uh, like you don't actually have huge, gigantic incentives in, in it seems an average it, outside of the, uh, in the vendor world, you know, you're given all sorts of incentives. And then, you know, like we we're saying, the, uh, the goal of, of operations is, uh, to keep, to keep stuff up and running and whether you're doing SRE stuff, like whether you use SLAs or SLOs or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then I think, I think your, your incentives are pretty much the same. Like, um, you just, it's not, it's not like, for example, you don't get to share in the revenue that you help create. <laughs> no. So anyways. No, I've noticed, I've noticed that throughout my career. <laughs> Begrudgingly noticed that. So anyways, back to the business side. So that's a template of like in the IT world about goals and incentives. What, uh, what have you seen it kind of be on the business side? Well, to, to be perfectly honest, I've seen on, on the business side, I've seen the goals and, and uh, I've seen the goals manipulated quite a bit, and and you know, as you move up in on in the business world, the they do get rewarded <laughs> with very large bonuses. Yeah, as you move up, and making sure you get that that's you know that's very critical. It might be a huge portion of your of your income. Um, so I start seeing so even on the IT side, I start seeing, um, for example, if you're very bad at doing something, say you're learning CI/CD, um, you need to come up with a way to measure how you're improving. Um, but what I've seen is people measuring things that they know they can hit. Mm. So if I'm doing, if I'm using CICD to build uh, Linux, for example, to build my Linux images for Kubernetes, well, I need to know that I'm improving and doing a better job and that it's fat. But instead what I see measured is like how many times you do it and measuring how many times you do something you're bad at is not a very useful um, measurement. I, I like to give the example of I can go on vacation and I can measure my vacation by the number of kilometers I go from home. Right. And it, it tells me nothing about the, the actual quality of my vacation. Uh, I need a better measurement for it. And so I, I see those kinds of things. I, depending on where you are in a business, your, your, um, your main goals might be different. It might be getting something to market. It might be revenue. It might be, uh, you know, decreasing, uh, expenditures. Um, but there's almost always, you know, ways to, to sort of manipulate things to make those. So I see that a lot. I, I, I see that. I don't know if that's what you were driving for, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Or, or it, it, no. no, no, exactly. I mean, that kind of thing of, of like, what is, uh, on, 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 on the business side, like, what are they, uh, 
Like what are they driven by? I can tell you what they should be driven by. Let's say you're, you're in the auto industry, you're in some industry that has the potential to be disrupted. You should worry about survival. It should be, this is an, so as, as things are changing in, in an industry, these, this is existential. You know, this is Sears, who was once the very largest retailer in the world, doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> you know, and it, while it's not entirely Amazon, at least some of it is Amazon. And they didn't react well to those. So, no, you know, actually being driven so that you can make the changes you need to maintain the, the, the health of a business, that, that should be the drive. That should be your goal. You know, I, I was, that's one thing we were talking about. And, and I was kind of reorienting this, this book, at least the opening of it around like, uh, surviving as, as the, I don't know if it's always, you don't want it to be the primary goal, but it's almost like the, uh, the baseline or the entry level goal, <laughs> right? Like, like eventually if you fall down the stack of business goals, that one's at the bottom supporting all of it. And, but it does seem like another way to think about it or, or an additional way I should say is there's, uh, I think this is the proper use of the idea of a dichotomy, which is uh, two seemingly contradictory things that describe the same thing or something. But like, it's almost like this uh, survival innovation strategy, right? Like you're either you're you can you can uh, you can survive by innovating, and you know innovation is what causes other people to need to survive. And if you uh, if you can't sort of keep your eye on both of those then uh, something is going to, you're not really going to do either of them because uh, mm. I, guess, I guess the the old cliche of this is from that old, uh, you know, the old Andy Grove thing. Is it Grove or Groove? I always forget, but it's basically like, you know, only the paranoid survive. Mm. <laughs> and um, which, which on, on the other hand, you know, if you're just purely innovating and you're not focused on survival, that also typically is not going to work unless you're just really lucky like a Google and, and you just kind of stumble into acquiring double click one day. Uh, yeah. but like, so it's really like those two things seem to be pretty core to like a good business function at the very bottom of it. That's missing in a, in a lot of cases. I think they don't feel that they don't see that, uh, they could, they could be displaced. Some do the smart companies do, but then you have to figure out what do you, what do you do? You know, how do you make sure you're not displaced? And it's, you know, if you have a large amount of revenue in something that could be disrupted, it's, you're in a difficult position because you 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 don't want to give up that revenue while you prepare for what's next. Yeah, and I think that's the that, that's the innovator's dilemma, right? You have to disrupt yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I haven't I haven't like kept up. There, there was there was. Do you remember this? Like three. What year is this? Maybe three or four years ago, there was this, uh, this little kerfuffle over, let's call it the, uh, how, how the, the uppercase D versus lowercase D disruption. And I, and mm -hmm. it was sort of like this, this, uh, re-explanation. Like everyone uses disruption and they use it in like, let's call it the dictionary meaning of it, which is like someone's jacking with my stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And I think most of the time when we say businesses are being disrupted, it's just like they're being messed with, you know, they're being competed aggressively with. Whereas like, you know, the classic definition of disruption to be all pedantic is like, uh, mm. what is it? You have a, uh, you, you have an incumbent, they use the, the, the Christian Jin use like steel mills. So you got big gigantic steel manufacturers and they were disrupted by small steel mills who made a uh, inferior product or, or an inferior or niche product at a cheaper price. And then basically the big steel mills can't really like 
deal with that? Because as you were saying, they've got this gigantic revenue associated with a bigger portfolio of steel. And so they're like, I don't know. I have neither the care nor time to worry about this weird edge case for uh, a part of the market I don't really care about selling to. And and then eventually the the mini steel mills or whatever, like – and this is maybe where the dichotomy things they're able to survive <laughs> because they get this business and they can survive long enough to either change what the face of the market is, meaning they innovate or they, they are, they also innovate by growing into the bigger part of the, the business. And meanwhile, the, uh, the larger incumbent didn't notice in time. And so like start has a new competitor or a new market definition they have to deal with. Uh, which that's fine. But it seems like, I don't know. I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of what goes on nowadays is just lowercase disruption. Like, like Amazon is going to come eat my lunch, which we've known for like 10 years. <laughs> so, so it's, it's not like well, it's, a, it's know, not like I, it's a I, surprise. It shouldn't be, but it is for some people still. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the problem. Right? Is that, is that, yeah. I mean, there's, there is in, inside that, that transaction stack that Amazon has, they want to get every penny they can and not give any to anyone else. And they're going to be very good at that. Yeah. So, so if you're, if you're in that stack, whether you're FedEx or I don't know, boxing, make, you make boxes, whatever, I would be, I'd be worried. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, there's, in, it is uh, Amazon. That, the, the little D disruption is what I, I agree that that's what that's what's coming. And the risk is um, in some larger companies, it's like a giant boat and they can't maneuver quickly. Mm. So what they're trying to do is maneuver quickly. And then they, they've replaced the, the the port thrusters, but not the aft thrusters. <laughs> I, I know nothing about the things I'm talking does, about. Does so that mean they just end sense. up going in circles <laughs> really quickly? If I remember. Yeah, it's that. Yeah, it's you're not you're not going to be able to actually maneuver well if you're if you're not looking at at everything, and that's you know that it you, it seems to start with IT worrying about IT and it not being and I've that's not saying I've I've never seen it as as corporate why where the business is is involved with transformation, but it is um, I think rare. I, I think it usually starts from from IT. In 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 what sense? I mean the the drive to so they IT is responding to changes in IT uh, sort of practices, not into changes. They're not responding to requests from the business. Mm. So the business needs to know that this that this transformation needs to happen, and they need to be saying this is what we need. This is where we think the, the the our products need to go. This is where we think the market's going. And then IT can take that information and start to build out the things that they need to achieve their goals. But what's happening is IT's building things out first on their own without the business. That's that's what I have seen mostly. Yeah. IT transforming, trying to be agile because you know that's what you do now. And the business sort of lagging behind because they weren't invited to the party. That, that's that's what I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there's there's two things you've hit on there that I think are you know uh, uh, another view of of the uh, the 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 multi faced demon of the business bottleneck, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> and and that is that is like one. There are some set of and and this is a little bit of like you know uppercase disruption theory, but there are some set of mysterious incentives or states of minds 
that businesses have such that they stop being innovative. Um, even though like, I think every single issue of the Harvard business review is like, you should be innovative <laughs> or, you know, when it's not like the HR section or whatever, but like, it's, it's sort of like, it's a very well-known thing that you need to do that. And so somehow, despite that, like people don't do it. And, and I say people specifically because the organization is just the people making a bunch of decisions. So there are a handful of individuals who like decide this is the way it will be essentially. And then, and then the other side of it, the, the other thing that you mentioned is like, why is, and this gets to that, that, that bottleneck is like, why isn't the business asking IT to do things? <laughs> right? Like, like we need to have an application that does this and you should do it. Right. Versus because they, because they don't think they can do it. Right. Right. No, ex- you know, that, that, yeah, that's, that's the trust. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so it's, it's, there's that clunking going on. And so I guess, I guess that gets to the thing that like, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's the conclusion we keep, or at least I keep dancing around is like, it's IT's job to win back that trust somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is, but it, it's, it's, it's hard and it's not going to happen if you build all this new infrastructure and processes without talking to them. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's, you know, you, you have to find out what they need and they don't, you know, your business might not need exactly what Spotify needs or what Netflix needs. You know, it, whatever you build, however you organize, whatever your processes are, they need to be appropriate to your, your business and your culture at your company. Like do you, I mean, obviously you do cause you're saying it, but like how, Give me some examples of like IT building out their own stuff with no one asking because it does it it does and I and I I don't know I'm struggling to describe it in a way that's not judgmental but like I would assume IT was a little more lazy than that <laughs> right like they would just not be interested in proactive improvement but I don't know maybe, maybe I'm you wrong know, so it, how do you see that how does so that happen IT IT is is can can be lazy i know i'm i'm one of them but usually we err on the side of uh, of automating things to help us be lazier ah, um, <laughs> right so yeah i i i think that it's also we're talking about modern to new technology that people think is going to strengthen their career um and help them so i think there's a lot in it if you're a technologist and you're leading some a transformation. If you're learning cloud native ways of doing things that you know really they have nothing to do with cloud. They're just it's just modern uh, best practices of software development now. But if you're learning those, that helps you. So of course you want to do it. If you don't want to do it, then you must be near retirement. So of course they want to do it. There's, there's so they start building out. They find the newest open source cloud project with the OpenStack, and they're going to build out all the infrastructure from themselves and write everything themselves and and they're doing this because they've heard that the business is starting to go to amazon or google cloud but then they don't have a discussion with the business about what they need they just Mm. start trying to solve the problem that they think exists yeah it's interesting because because just as a parenthetical it's almost like it is trying to be more proactive by having better it and and this is sort of this is a way of winning back the trust of the business, but they've kind of forgotten to tell the business they're trying to win their trust back. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's I, I know what was the word you used at the beginning? Not arrogance, um, but you used a word when you started this, and that's I think that's what it is. Um, I've forgotten the word. We'll have to rewind. But it basically <laughs> it's, it's it's arrogant. It's thinking that you know what they need. Yeah. 
yeah. and with, without asking them. That that's that's how I see it. I see it as as us as technologists being. And you know, I suffered from that a lot myself. I I always I wasn't pragmatic. There was one good technical solution, and that's the one that there should be. And I'll give it to you, and then you'll do exactly what I say when you create your products. That that's that that would have been the way I approach things. But now I've as I've I've grown into the later stages of my career, I realized that I need to be more pragmatic. And and sometimes this thing that I consider technically pure, the the correct solution isn't actually the right solution, you know, for for cultural reasons or for other reasons that the, that there, there's something else. The best thing doesn't always succeed. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I, I can remember an example in a very small way, a uh, micro example of of that kind of thing. Way way back when when I was working at uh, BMC Software of all places. Uh, on some systems management stuff. I remember this is like right when Flickr had come out in the, in the early 2000s and uh, when tags had been invented. There was, there was a time before tags, even a time before hashtags, oddly enough. <laughs> and, uh, I remember putting together this, this, I was a developer there, putting together this presentation that basically we should introduce tags into the system. Uh, so, you know, you could like tag your assets and, and tag groups of things and search for them. And really, like, I had no basis for that other than thinking tags were cool. And uh, <laughs> I think we ended up doing it. And I have no idea if anyone actually used that or it made a difference. So uh, good for me. <laughs> just just doing something that was unasked for that, that I thought was good. And then, of course, and I guess this kind of gets to the divide is like, you know, there was uh, no need for follow up on my part to see if it had an effect. Now. On the other hand, and I and I think maybe at a vendor, this is an, another. This is kind of whether you want to call it a you know silly putty or a wormhole or a fix, but at a software vendor, you have a product manager, and it's almost like the product manager is the one who does this divide. Or again, it's not a divide, but they sort of like advocate for business value for what customers actually want to do on the development team. Because I remember. And and the product manager we had now, this guy uh, Brandon, who I do one of my other podcasts with, he uh, he was pretty good at just telling us we were crazy and should go back to writing code, and then uh, <laughs> and then coming coming with very very boring but high value to our our customers features that uh, we had to implement instead. But uh, I don't know. It was nice to have that pretty strong connection to the actual people using our software. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. That's what you need. But and if you see companies that have done that role well of like product manager, then it it's it it works. One of the problems when when IT starts to transform is they start getting rid of that because they consider that waterfall, and they're oh, replaced right. with just scrum masters who don't bridge the gap between business anymore. You know, you know what does a scrum master do? In, in in both the ideal state and then in the the real state in the pragmatic state like what what is i i don't know if i've gotten a good grasp on how well the concept of agile coach fits in at organizations you know i i, I have seen um them filling the role of sort of product manager hmm. they're they're making sure that things get done sort of a combination between product and project yeah and they're supposed to be they communicate back back to the business if that happens at all and they sort of live with that project they 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 stay with it at least that's what uh, i've done in the past is if you have a scrum master and they they just they have ownership of that like a product manager would 
but they didn't, I mean, they didn't have that business connection, didn't have connection through to make sure that it, that the business's needs are being met. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a good, I've never thought about it, but that's a good rule of thumb of your scrum masters are probably your product managers, right? Which, which is, um, there, there's, there's, there's another diagnostic tool. I was talking with this guy, uh, Nathan Harvey, who, uh, he, he heads up, I think he heads up like the SRE advocate group at Google now, whatever you call advocate people. I guess you're not supposed to say evangelist for whatever reason. Uh, and he had a good way of phrasing like who the business is. And, and again, it's just a rule of thumb. He said, one way you can find out who the business owner is, is the last person who told you to ship the software, even though there were bugs in it, <laughs> is probably someone who cares about the business. And similarly, right? Like you could draw another sort of like, you know, sketchy rule by sketchy, you know, it's sort of like sometimes works, doesn't work. You could say, if you want to find your product managers, start talking to your scrum masters because they probably do a fair amount of that, which is, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's probably a, a interesting way to switch around what they do because they're in charge of like making sure your stories work and helping you with backlogs. Like ostensibly, I think a scrum master and an agile coach is supposed to go around and help out teams do stuff, but not do stuff for teams. But I think they end up actually filling that role of product and project manager. Yeah, and not not always not always well. You know, they don't always have <laughs> right. the skill set to, to do that. It's it's you know, I, I think one of the things that I that kind of saddens me or disappoints me about the the agile movement is that is that they're discounting some of those roles like product manager, which I've always thought is very important. Um, someone owning the product and sort of being the visionary and being the connection back to the, the or being the connection back to that, the, the, whoever is supplying the vision for that product is really important. And, and I think sometimes we throw out the, uh, the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Yeah. Like I remember way back in the XP book, they call it the, uh, I don't know whether it's a stakeholder or a customer advocate or something. And there's even, I'd have to go back and reread it, but I think there, in that section, there's a lot of emphasis on like, they should actually be a customer or, and then you can have a proxy. That's the person who owns the business of the customer. And then after that, you're screwed, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like you can have this layer of proxies, uh, substitutes for the actual real thing. Uh, but like you lose so much fidelity or so much transmission of what's actually needed, uh, through those layers that it ends up not being helpful. And, it, d it does seem like that role of, of the customer voice, even that's a proxy, but like someone actually sitting there and telling people what they need and what has value. And we can think of that as a product manager. Like that does seem to get lost really quickly in doing all sorts of agile. That would be, uh, that would be a good area to focus on is like, you know, where are your product managers and what do they do? And, and if there's no answer to that, then like, all right. We got a lot of work to do. <laughs> like, like not only do we have a lot of work to do, but like solve that problem first and then you can start solving other problems. Yep. I, I agree completely. <laughs> so I, I think, I think we've kicked over an anthill of a bunch of topics to, is, I don't think that's a mixed metaphor, just a cruel one, <laughs> uh, that, that we can pull fun, pull from for some next episodes. But, uh, you got, you got any, uh, masterful sum up you want here at the end? Yeah, you need to transform to survive, but you need to do it. You need to do it thoughtfully. You know, you, so I, I think that uh, you also need to value what you've done 
and in, in the past and the processes you have and, and find something that fits for your, for your business. I don't know if that's masterful or a sum up, but uh, I said it. <laughs> yeah. You need to transform to survive, but you need to be uh, mindful. Mm-hmm. That's good. Maybe we'll try to do that. I, I, in my podcast, I like to have a reoccurring thing at the end. We could do the masterful sum up, which, which uh, yeah. is very tongue in cheek. Uh, as far as the, the masterfulness, I, I would tr- I try to think about it a little more ahead of time and be more masterful. Mm. <laughs> well, but but as, 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 as we know of all mastery, true mastery <laughs> means you don't have to think about it. You're like uh, you're like Bukowski's headstone. Don't try. <laughs> all right. On that note, uh, we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>